0: You know, we've had some wonderful speakers the last several weeks, have we not? Amen. And today is no exception. And if you were here yesterday for the spiritual formation uh, seminar, you know that our speaker today is well versed in the word of God. We look forward to that message. But our guest is from Southeastern <coughs> Seminary in Wakefield, uh, Wake Forest, North Carolina, where he lives there with his wife, Pam, who is with us as well. And he serves as a dean and a faculty member there. He also has his Ph.D. in education <clears throat> from the South, uh, excuse me, from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville. Also, he is a strategic leader with the International Missions Board of the Southern Baptist Convention, and that's pretty amazing. And. Also impressive is that he has been connected as a professor and dean with the Billy Graham School of Missions and Evangelism. <clears throat> but when you talk to him, you'll see that he's a pastor, he's a mentor, he's a writer, he's a conference speaker, and he's a wonderful, uh, amazing man of God. Covenant family, we're honored and blessed today to welcome as our guest speaker, Dr. Chuck Lawless.
1: Good morning. Let me ask you to get your Bibles and let's get right at the Word. Mark chapter 5. I want you to find your place in your scriptures, whether your hard copy or your electronic copy. And then I want you to do me a favor. I want you just to hold your Bible in your hand, either your hard copy, your phone, however you're looking at the Word. If you don't have a copy, just hang with us and think about this exercise in your head. I want you to to have your Bible in your hand, and I want you to get two numbers in your head. The first one should be really easy. The second one may take some work. So here's the first number. Please get in your head the number of people who live in your house today. That one's pretty easy, right? I, I trust. For me, it's Pam and I, so just two of us. Here's the second number I want you to get in your head. The number of copies of the Bible you have in your house today. I'll give you just a few seconds to think through every location in your house. Now do this for me. Raise your hand for me if you have more Bibles in your house than you have human beings. Let me see your hands. Hold them up. Look around a little bit. All right, you may take them down. Let me tell you why, why I want you to think about that this morning. I have the privilege of serving with our missionaries around the world. We know that 4 billion plus people in the world have little or no access to the gospel today. I can take you to places in the world where they have no copies of the scriptures in their language, I can take you to places where they have just a few portions of the scripture in their language. Pam and I have been in places where they, they have just a couple of portions of the Scripture or just one or two copies of the Scripture, and they pass what they have around so that each of them can, can digest just a little bit of God's Word. And then I come back here to the States, and I recognize something. I have the entirety of God's Word in my language, in my hands. And I can open it with you twice today without threat on my life, without fear of persecution for doing so. Meanwhile, our brothers and sisters around the world, some of them this Lord's day, will open the word knowing that it could cost them their freedom or their life. And I say that to you to say, as you and I open the word today, you know what? You and I are really, 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 really blessed. Are we not? So we dig into the word. I'm going to begin reading in just a minute in Mark chapter 5, verse 21. I want to set up this look at the scripture with this question. Have you ever faced a time in life when you just did not know what to do? You ever been there? I trust you have. You might be there even today wondering, what do I do with this situation I want us to look at two stories in Mark's gospel and, and pull those stories apart to see how the scriptures answer that question for us. What do I do when I don't know what to do? In this part of Mark's gospel, Mark does what he occasionally does. He starts with one story, and then he interrupts it with the second story, then comes back to the first story. And so let's look at these stories together, and then we want to ask the question, what do we learn from these texts? What do we do when we don't know what to do? So here's the first part of this text, verse 21. When Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the sea. Now stop there for a minute and remember these words, a large crowd gathered around him. Verse 22, one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet and begged him earnestly, my little daughter is dying. Come and lay your hands on her so that she can get well and live. So Jesus went with him, and here's that wording again, a large crowd was following and pressing against him. Now that's the beginning of story number one. A father whose daughter is dying has come running to Jesus, and he said to Jesus, please come touch my daughter so that she will get well and live. Jesus agrees to go, and off they go. Then in verse 25, there's an interruption. Now a woman, suffering from bleeding for 12 years, had endured much under many doctors. She had spent everything she had and was not helped at all. On the contrary, she became what? Tell me. She became worse. Having heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his clothing. For she said, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be made well. And instantly her flow of blood ceased and She sensed in her body that she was healed of her affliction. At once, Jesus realized in himself that power had gone out from him. He turned around the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing against you, and yet you say, Who touched me? But he was looking around to see who had done this. The woman, with fear and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Daughter, He said to her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace and be healed from your affliction. That's the end of story number two. We now pick up in verse 35 with story number one again. While he was still speaking, people came from the synagogue leader's house and said, your daughter is what? Dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? As you see, when death set in, they thought the story was over. When Jesus overheard what was said, he told the synagogue leader, don't be afraid, only believe. He did not let anyone accompany him except Peter, James, and John, James' brother. They came to the leader's house, and he saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why are you making commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but asleep. Now, he is not denying her death. His point is that this story is not over yet. There is still more to come. She has died, but she will not stay there. Verse 40. They laughed at him, but he put them all outside. He took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and entered the place where the child was. Then he took the child by the hand and said to her, "Talitha kum, which is translated, "little girl, I say to you, get up." And immediately the girl got up and began to walk, for she was 12 years old. At this, they were utterly astounded. Then he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this and told them to give her something to eat. And that ends the story. Now, let's let's look at these two stories together, these interwoven, intersecting lives, and see what we learn from these two characters about what we do when we don't know what to do. Two desperate people. What do we do? Here's number one. I trust you're taking notes. You can write uh, in your notes. You can type in your phone. However, you do this, here's point number one We must come to Jesus. What do we do when we don't know what to do? We must come to Jesus. Now, I'm going to take you back in this story. I want, you to, I want you to use all your senses, and I want you to see and hear this narrative of Mark's gospel. I introduce you first to a woman. We don't know her name. We don't know anything about her family. We don't know much about her history. But what we do know is not good. We know that she's had a blood disease for 12 years. This is likely a a female problem, likely a menstrual problem. It's quite possible that this, this disease made her infertile, which would have been a desperate condition for a first century woman. And we know this. She's gone to all the doctors and she spent all of her money and she is not better. In fact, she is what? She is worse. And I I can just envision seeing this story in my mind. I can see this woman getting up one morning. The sun comes up. She has a little bit of hope, a glimmer of hope. So she thinks to herself, well, maybe today this doctor has an answer. She goes to that doctor and she spends her dollars and he has no cure. The next day... The sun rises again, and maybe today she thinks, maybe now this doctor can help me. And to another doctor she goes, and he has no answer. And the days, the days roll on into weeks, and the weeks, and the months, and the, the months into years, and the years into a decade plus. For 12 years, she has gone from doctor to doctor to doctor to doctor. And she is only worse. Surely, surely her world is one of defeat and despair and discouragement and depression at this point. For she has no answer. Do you know anybody like this woman today? Do you know anybody who got up this morning and they have no hope? Their life is just defeat and despair, and it seems like no matter what they do, they just keep making a bigger mess of things. It just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. Well, let me tell you something. If you don't know anybody like that, you don't know enough people because there are people like that all over this county, all over your state, all over our continent, and all over the nations, I assure you. There are people who got up today and they have no answer. You and I have the answer. And that answer is Jesus. Why should this day be different for her? We have a reason. Look at verse 27 of Mark 5. Four simple words in English. We learn why her world is about to change. Having heard about whom? Jesus. Having heard about Jesus. Well, you know what? If she heard about Jesus, that means somebody must have been doing what? talking about him. Somebody was telling people about Jesus. Now, we don't know who it was. We don't know what she heard. Maybe, maybe somebody said to her, you've, you've got to get to Jesus. He's coming through your town, and you have to get to him because here's what I've heard about him. He, he can give sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf and, and legs to the lame. And I've even heard he can, he can raise the dead. You got to get to him her world is about to change because she came to Jesus. But then there's another character in this story, and he's quite different from this woman. She is unnamed. He is named. He is Jairus. She's an outcast. Because, because she was bleeding, she would have been declared unclean, and she could not have gathered in a place like this to worship. But he's a ruler of the synagogue. Her future is dim. We know little about his future, except we learn this. His daughter lay dying. And I, again, I can envision the first day when Daddy held that daughter in his arms for the first time and he looked into her eyes and thanked God for that little life. And I I can see Dad working day after day after day to put food on the table, and, and I can just see I can see the time when that daddy started pacing the floor back and forth because his daughter was sick. And I can even see the day when he figured out that even daddy couldn't help her this time. And surely he had done what this woman had done. Surely he went to all the doctors and surely he spent all of his money. Surely he did that, trying to get his daughter well, because that's what daddies do. Surely he tried everything, but somewhere he must have learned about Jesus. And he comes running to Jesus, please come touch my daughter so that she will get well and live. He believes Jesus can do something, but he believes Jesus can do something if he gets there in time. Still, he believes Jesus is the answer. And here's what we learn. When you're desperate and hurting and you don't know what to do, here's what you do. Come to Jesus. See, I don't know what you're facing today or what you will face in the days to come. But I do know this. You can read any book you want to read about it. You can do any Google search you want to do. You can talk to anybody you want to talk to. But at the end of the day, there is one answer And that answer is still Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We must come to Him, not run from Him, run to Him. Here's number two. What do we do? when We don't know what to do. We must believe that God is working even when we cannot see His hand. We must believe that God is working even when we cannot see His hand. Now, again, I want you to get into the story with me. Imagine this crowd pressing up against Jesus. Twice we're told that there is this great crowd. One gospel writer says they are crushing Jesus. So you get the picture of all these people who have gathered around Jesus because they want to hear him teach. Nobody teaches like he teaches. They want his healing hand and Jairus comes and somehow he gets to Jesus. He falls before him and he says, please come touch my daughter. And Jesus agrees to go. And off they go. Well, see it with me again. Here's this crowd moving toward the home of Jairus. They, they've surely... They're, they're moving quickly. They have to be because there's an emergency at the end of this journey. A daughter is dying. I'm guessing it's Jairus who's leading the way because it's his daughter who's dying. And they make their way toward his house and then there is this woman who reaches out to touch Jesus' garment. And Jesus stops in his tracks and says, who, who touched me? Now, I'll come back to that in just a moment, but get the picture with me. A desperate father whose daughter is dying. A hurting woman who stops Jesus. Jesus. And Jesus stops this parade and he draws this woman out and he has a conversation with her. If you're Iris, are you getting a little antsy at this point? I would, I would think so. Why? Because your daughter is dying. I can't even hear him saying to Jesus, would you get a move on? My daughter's dying, and you've stopped to talk to a woman. That's most unusual in that culture and in that century. And plus, she's an unclean woman. My daughter's dying. Come touch her. And yet Jesus so talks with this woman that word comes from the home of Iris: your daughter is dead. You don't need to trouble the teacher anymore. You see, their faith dies with that death. Jesus overhears what, what they had said. He ignores what they said. And he says to Iris, look, don't you be afraid. You just keep believing. Why would, why would Jesus say that? Everything logical in this story, the most logical thing for Jairus to do now is to go home and bury his daughter and grieve with his wife. For as far as he's concerned, the story is over, except that Jesus says, no, you just keep believing. Why would he say that? Because Jesus knows what Jairus cannot know. He knows that though the story is now a story of death, it's about to become a story of life. It's now a tragedy, it's about to become a miracle. It has an ending, it's about to have a new beginning. Jesus knows this, God is still at work, even when Iris cannot know what he's doing. And you and I have to learn that same truth. Let Let me tell you a personal way that I learned that lesson. I have a younger brother, we grew up in Ohio. I adore my younger brother. But for many years, we were going in two different directions. I was pastoring a church in Ohio, and he was getting messed up with with drugs and alcohol, and desperately so. And it seemed to me that the more we prayed, the worse it got. You ever been there? You might be there now. You've been praying and praying and praying, and it just seems to get worse. And that's and that's where I was. I'd given up on my brother. I was close to giving up on God. And then one surprising Sunday, I was getting ready to preach. In our in our church, there was a little pew right here for the preacher, for the pastor. So I was in my seat. To my great surprise, in the door of our church came my brother and his wife and my niece. They came all the way up to the second row in our church, and nobody sat that close in our church. <laughs> nobody did. Well, I'm preaching. And the whole time I'm thinking, what in the world are they doing here? At the end of our message, we gave a response time, and, and out they came, and they said, we want to follow Jesus, and God freed my little brother almost overnight. God changed him. I got with him after the service, and I said, look, guy, I, I'd given up on you. And I was close to giving up on God. How'd you get here? And they began to tell me all the ways that God had been working in their lives to bring them to this place. I just didn't know it. You know what God taught me that day? Something I should have known by that point. Here's what God taught me when God is doing His work in our lives, He is under no obligation to let us in on the details. Right? And you know why that's the case? Because He's God and we're not. It's really that simple. God can work however God wishes, and God can let us in on whatever he wants to let us in on. And if he lets us in on nothing, our responsibility is to just keep believing anyway. Let me tell you the rest of that story, just because I love to tell this part of the story. My, my younger brother joined me then in praying for our parents who were not believers. We prayed for my dad for 36 years And when my dad was 71 years old, God saved him. God brought him to him. All the while we were praying, and at times wanting to give up, God was still working. My dad was so changed by the gospel the last three years of his life, he was weird. Uh, (laughs) he, He had just changed so dramatically. We kept praying for my mom. My wife, Pam, will tell you, we just kept praying. We prayed another 11 years for my mom. My mom was 79 She, out of nowhere, called us and told us she had turned to Jesus. And I had the privilege of baptizing her a little over two and a half years ago. She lived only six more months before the Lord called her home. But I had six glorious months of my mom as my mom and my sister in Christ. 47 years we prayed, and God heard. You might be right there today. You don't know what to do, and it seems like God's not listening. And the enemy says, just give up. God says, uh-uh, you just keep believing. What do we do we don't want to do? You come to Jesus. You believe God's at work even when you cannot see his hand. Here's number three. We must know that when God works, nothing gets in his way. We must know that when God works, nothing gets in his way. These, these two stories juxtaposed against one another It's fascinating the parallels. A woman who was sick for 12 years, a daughter who was was 12 years old. A woman made a daughter. Jesus said, daughter, your faith has made you well. A crowd around Jesus, a crowd when they get to the home of Jairus. I want you to see those crowds as obstacles for a minute. This crowd is making their way to the home of the, the ruler of the synagogue. And here's this woman. Her culture says she cannot get to the rabbi. She can't speak to him. She surely can't touch his garment. And yet in her desperation, she gets there. And she reaches out and touches just the hem of his garment. And instantaneously, Jesus does for her what no other doctor could do. He heals her. Jesus stops and says, who touched me? Not I think because he didn't know who it was, but because he wanted to draw her out. And his disciples look at Jesus and they say, Master, look at all these people pressing against you. How in the world can we tell you who touched you? In essence, here's what they say. Jesus, that's a dumb question because everybody's touching you. And here's what I love about this part of the story. There is one hurting, desperate woman in this crowd and Jesus does not miss her touch. Because no crowd gets in our God's way. I think about that this morning because all over the world, if you and I were to pray right now and reach out to the Father, the same time all around the world, our needs being lifted to the Father. From nations all over the globe, languages, numerous, needs ongoing, voices many, all, all being raised to the Father. But you know what? It doesn't matter how many prayers are entering the throne of God at this given moment. When you and I reach out to him, when you and I cry out to God in faith and trust, he hears our cry. He feels our touch as if we were the only ones crying out to him right then because no crowd gets in our God's way. Well, then Jesus makes his way to the home of Iris, and there's a crowd there too. You may know that in the first century, it was customary to hire professional mourners, people who made their living going from funeral to funeral to funeral crying. And when Jesus gets to the home of Jairus, they are there, and they are earning their keep. The text says they are making a commotion, weeping and wailing loudly. And Jesus says to them, why are you carrying on like this? This story is not over. You remember what they did when Jesus said that? The child is not dead, but asleep. Remember what the text says? They laughed at him. How is it that they can be weeping and wailing loudly one moment and laughing the next? You know how they do that? They do that for a living. It's just what they do. And they laugh at the Son of God, which, by the way, is not a smart thing to do. And the text says he put them all out. The word there for put them out is the same word in Mark's gospel for exorcism. He cast them out with the same kind of righteous authority that Jesus cast demons out. He said to these people, you get out of my way because I've got work to do. No crowd gets in our God's way. Let's do a quick Bible quiz. God brought his people to the Red Sea. The sea is in front of them. The Egyptian army is pursuing them. Was that a problem for God? No, God just rolled the waters back. He led his people across on dry ground, collapsed the waters on the Egyptians. Nothing gets in our God's way. Go with me to the walled city of Jericho. It is so fortified that nobody's going in and nobody's coming out. A problem for God? Nope, God said, here's the deal. Walk around like I tell you, the walls will come down. Down they came because nothing gets in our God's way. Go with me to a valley where there is a Philistine giant taunting the armies of the living God. Goliath was his name. Nobody would fight him. Was he a problem for God? Uh Uh-uh. God raised up a shepherd boy, gave him a rock and a sling. Like a laser beam, he directed that rock to the forehead of that giant, and down he came because no giant gets in our God's way. Go with me to a lion's den. The prophet placed there by the king. Were those lions a problem for God? No, he made them. And so he just clamps their jaws shut because nothing gets in our God's way. Then go all the way forward with me to a borrowed tomb outside the walled city of Jerusalem. The son of God has been placed there. Jesus has been crucified. The demons surely rejoice because he is dead. Is that a problem for God? No, it's central to our faith. God rolls that rock away to show us his son is alive and well because even death doesn't get in the way of our God. Again, I don't know what mountains you have to climb today. I don't know what valleys you have to go through or what might be your life in the days to come. But I know that God's bigger And our problem is this. We get more focused on the circumstances of life than we do on the God who is bigger than the circumstances. When you don't know what to do, come to Jesus. Believe that God's at work even when you cannot see his hand. Know that when God works, nothing gets in his way. And then here's number four. What do we do when we don't know what to do? Trust God to meet our needs. Trust him to meet our needs. Jesus goes into the home of Jairus. He says to the little girl, little girl, I say to you, get up. And when the Son of God tells you to get up, you just need to get up. And that's what she did. She's walking around. Verse 43 says, then he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Now, he first tells them, don't go tell anybody. Probably because they're in Jewish territory, the Jews still don't understand what kind of Messiah is coming. coming. They're not ready to hear all this, so Jesus tells this family, don't go tell anybody. Another gospel writer tells us this, they went and told everybody anyway. (laughs) Because how do you not, when your daughter's dead and now she's alive, how do you keep that to yourself? But then the text says he told them to give her something to eat. That's fascinating to me. The story ends with that. He gave this word to them, give her something to eat. Again, I can, I can see it. I can just see this family rejoicing. Some, their, their hands in the air, praising God. Some, maybe their arms wrapped around the, 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 the feet of the Redeemer. Surely, tears of great joy rolling down their face. And in the midst of all that celebrating, Jesus says, feed the girl. <laughs> and that's how this story ends. Why would he say, feed her? I think there are two reasons. One, when he says, give her something to eat, here's what he's saying to them. This girl you see walking in your midst, she's not a figment of your imagination. This is not your grief just overwhelming you. You're not seeing things that aren't there. Your daughter is in front of you. She's really here. She's really alive. She's in her physical body. And in her physical body, she needs nourishment. So feed her. Jesus is validating the miracle when he says, give her something to eat. But I think he's doing something else. If he says, give her something to eat, what must he know about her? She must be what? Hungry. She's been dead, for goodness sake. Maybe she's hungry. And Jesus knows it. Here's why that's powerful to me. You read through this gospel, you read particularly this part of the gospel in chapter 4 and chapter 5. Here's what you learn. This Jesus is the master over nature. He speaks and the wind ceases. He speaks and the waves die down. He's the master over demons. He speaks and the demons flee. He's the master over sickness. In his very garment, there is healing. And now we've learned he's the master over death. Who is this Jesus? This Jesus is the one who made everything that ever has been made. Who is this Jesus? He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords before whom every single one of us in this room will someday bow. This is Jesus, the Son of God. And yet this Jesus who rules over all knows this little girl so intimately that he knows when her belly rumbles because she's hungry. And that's how well he knows you and me, too. And that's a sweet, sweet God. You can trust him to meet your needs today because he knows you that intimately. Now, does that mean he'll always meet our needs the way that we think he should? Not necessarily, but remember, he's God and we're not. Does that mean he'll meet our needs according to our clock and our calendar? Nope, but he's God and we're not. He will meet our needs though. So, what do you do when you don't know what to do? You know what? You do know what to do. It's really simple come to Jesus. And when you come to Jesus, even when you cannot see what he is doing, trust that God is still at work. Believe that no matter what you face, God's bigger. Nothing gets in his way. And then just trust him. He knows where you are. He knows what you're facing. He knows when your belly rumbles because you're hungry. And he will meet your need. You know what to do. So let's just do it. Would you pray with me, please? In a moment, I'm going to ask you to stand with me to pray. And after we pray and as we respond to the Lord's word, worship him in song, you have deacons and elders that will be at the crosses around this room and I'm going to invite you to go to them if you need prayer. Maybe today you're facing a tough mountain and you just need God to help you trust him still. Pray with somebody that you don't carry that burden by yourself. Maybe, maybe you've been running from Jesus and you know God still is calling you to him. And today's the day that you want to say to someone, I just need to follow Jesus. Maybe you've been praying for somebody like I've prayed for my younger brother and we prayed for our parents and you're this close to giving up and you, you just need God's restoring your hope. Come, let one of these leaders pray with you. Or maybe today... Maybe today it's just hard for you to believe that God knows your needs. Your faith has been stretched to its limit. He will meet your needs. Let somebody pray with you that God will restore your trust in him. And let's go from this place, so overwhelmed by the goodness of Jesus that we can't help but tell others about him. Desperate, hurting people, who need to come to Jesus too. Would you stand with me as we pray? Just as soon as we pray, as the Lord leads you to respond, I invite you to do so. Father in heaven, God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the access you give us to your word. Thank you, Lord, that we can open it freely. Thank you for your spirit that speaks to us through your word. I pray for my friends in this room, for those that that don't know you personally, God, may they turn to you. For those that are wrestling with faith, may you strengthen them. And God, may we truly want to talk more about you because of our time with you today. In Jesus' name we pray,
0: amen.